Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, I forgot my stand, so I'm going to grab that really quick. How you guys doing? Good. Hey, can we, let's give it up for our worship team. Man, they just put their heart and their soul, their passion into worship. They bring it week in and week out. We're so honored to be a part of a church who uh, just has a heart for God's presence and a longing to be with him. So um, hopefully God spoke to you this morning through our time of worship. Hey, so we're finishing a series uh, today that we've been in for the last like three or four weeks. It's called First Things First. We've been putting some really important things in our life first. What are those important things? And so we looked at the first part of our day, making sure that we establish a really healthy and growing devotional life and prayer time and just making sure that we always have time that we set aside each day for the Lord. We also looked at the first part of our week, establishing a healthy routine and a weekly rhythm of honoring the Sabbath, making sure there's always one day that we put our work down and we give it up to the Lord and we're intentional with our family, friends, relationship, have some rest, relaxation. And then last week, we looked at the first part of our, our finances, making sure uh, and establishing healthy giving patterns and a healthy perspective of money. And today, we're going to finish this series off with putting Jesus first in our heart, first place in our heart. And even just as we were sitting there uh, worshiping, we're, you know, coming back to the heart of worship. I'm sorry, Lord, the, the things that I've made it or, you know, uh, the nothing else, nothing else will do. It's all about you. I just want to sit here at your feet, be in your presence. I don't know if you're anything like me, but like when those songs come on, I start uh, thinking of all the ways that I don't measure up and all the ways that I do need to come back. I'm like, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me for everything in my whole life. Like I need you. Like I'm coming back to you right now, God. I don't know if you're like me, but that's kind of how I get, you know, in worship. And we sing those songs. I'm like, Lord, you're not first place in my life right now. Lord, I need you. And that's kind of what happens to me when I get in those spots. And maybe that's you. And as we look at this topic of is Jesus first place in your life, I'll just ask the obvious question. Is Jesus first place in your life? You know, it's so easy to get in those rhythms in life, just like I do, where, you know, other things take priority than Jesus in our heart. Other things take priority other than Jesus in our life. And that could be a job, a person, a cause, a, a certain pleasure that you have, a hobby, a sports team, a dream that you're trying to work out. And these other things oftentimes take first place in our heart. They're the things we think about. They're the things we prioritize, we plan, other than putting Jesus first. And perhaps at some point in your life, God was first place in your life. Perhaps there was at some point in your life where you had him there. And just for a moment here, I want to take you back to maybe that first place that you put God in your life. And uh, maybe for some of you, that was a variety of places, but I feel like what always helps us get to that place where we reflect back is just really good prayer music, piano music. And I don't know if we have some like good piano music, but I don't know if you know, Jess, you can, why don't you come out? Yeah. I don't know if you know, but God doesn't work unless there's like good, like gospel pads in the background. He actually doesn't actually speak to us until that's happening. So if we can kind of get that going... Don't you already feel more spiritual? 
I feel more spiritual right now. Like, hallelujah, Lord, thank you for your many blessings. Don't I sound better already? You know what I'm talking about. But here's the, the important thing is that as Jesse's playing here, maybe for some of you, you remember something like this was happening. The preacher was preaching. The player was playing. And maybe you were at summer camp. Maybe you were at winter camp or a church camp. For those of you who gave your life to Christ at some church camp, would you raise your hand? That was me. I gave my life to Christ at church camp. For those of you, maybe you gave your life to Christ in the, the, at a rooted celebration or in a rooted group. And the pastor got up and said, those of you who want to say, I believe, you get to stand up right now and say, I believe. For someone here in the room that you gave your life to Jesus during rooted at some point, would you raise your hand if you gave your life to Good, that's great. What about like at a church service, maybe just on a regular Sunday or Christmas or Easter or, you know, something like that? Who gave their life to Christ on a Sunday morning at church? Come on. What about maybe you were alone in your bedroom or in your house or you were in your car and you just had that moment with the Lord. Maybe you were on the side of the road. I don't know. Those of you who just gave your life to the Lord and you were maybe alone with God or with a friend or family, would you just raise your hand? That, was that you? That's great. For me, I was at church camp and I was a junior in high school. And this, was ha- this exchange right here was happening. So I love that I get to be in this position right here. But just God met me in this powerful way. And there in that moment, God was first place in my life. And as you reflect back on when God was first place in your life, and that's like that flag in the sand moment that you stake that in. And when your mind can take you back there, I'm not trying to over emotionalize anything, but that's a really important moment. And sometimes scent, sound, sight can take you easily back there. And so as Jesse's playing here and you're reflecting on that, We want to put God first place in our life. Here's what he says. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus tells us that in Matthew. That is a really difficult concept to grasp. And as we're sitting here right now, and as he's playing, you're probably feeling like, yeah, I'll give my whole life to Christ right now. Like, dare me, you know? And as you think back at your time that you said yes to Jesus... If I was to read this scripture, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you would say, amen. Yes, I will do that. And that moment there, if you remember back to that moment at church camp, at Sunday school, whatever it was, when the, when the teacher had the felt board up and was putting the little Bible characters on at Sunday school, you know what I'm talking about? Who remembers the felt boards? Come on. Why don't we do felt boards anymore? And they had the little felt board up and they were putting the Bible characters on there. And you said yes to Jesus. If I would have said, you go from here and love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you would have said, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm bringing Jesus to my school. I'm bringing Jesus to my work. I'm bringing Jesus to my family, to my friends. And you would say yes and amen to that. Thanks, Jesse. All right. Well, the spiritual level is going to come like way down now. Okay. So like, right, Lord, thank you for all your goodness that you, that you give us. It's important that we go back to those places. And it's important that Um, even as we're joking, you know, about spirituality and whatnot. It's important that we go back there because in reality, now that the music's done, and especially when you leave here, what happens when we encounter that love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, with all your strength? 
In reality, what takes place is it kind of feels like, whew, all right, I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I don't know if I can accomplish that. I don't know if I really can do that. And uh, what we want to do is we want Jesus as the first place in our life. And, and not because he needs your worship. Not because uh, he's an egotistical God. But Jesus has called you to be a part of his mission on earth. He's called you into relationship with him and that he loves you dearly. And so he tells us this in Matthew that you, you are the light of the world. You're like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on the stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. You are the light of the world. You are plan A to reach the world. And there is no plan B. You're plan A. You're the light of the world. You get to go and be a part of this great commission that God has sent you and called you into the world. That he had to be first in your, in your life and in your heart that everything would revolve around that. That means your, your uh, worship, your relationships, your family, your friends, your work, your decisions, everything, your finances, all of it is centered around him. When Jesus called you and you responded and you said yes back at church camp, rooted Sunday, whatever it was, he wasn't just saying, I want a little bit from you and a little bit of you. I don't want just like 25% of your time and your effort. He was saying, I want all of it. I want all your heart, mind, soul, everything. And what you said in that moment was, yes, everything I give to you. And whether you realized what you signed up for, for or not, I'm telling you now, and there ain't no turning back. Because you are to be the light. I don't know if you know, but that we believe here, I believe that you are called to see the city of Spokane changed and saved. Some of you are called to see other places in our world changed and saved. You are called to see your, your college campus, your high school campus, your work, your family. You are called to see Spokane changed. And you know, there's things that we do in private and there's things we do in public. One thing that I do in private is I dance in private. <laughs> I don't dance in public, all right? My wife can attest to this. I shouldn't dance in public. <laughs> the world would not be a better place if I danced in public. So I don't. I choose not to. She's tried to some get me to come to like a salsa class or something. And, and I don't because no one wants to see it. And, it's, and I reserve that for the private times in my life. And maybe for you, there's things you do in private, right? Some of you are terrible at singing, but you let it loose in your car. You let it loose in the shower, right? But that ain't for anyone else other than you and your cat. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> but somehow we've bought into this fact that our faith and our Christianity was to stay in our private life. Somehow many of us, we just believe that's for me. That's for my, my kids and my family. And, and that's, that's not a public thing. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. 
That's for my private life. But your faith, your relationship with the Lord was never meant to be private. It was always meant to be public. That our lives should not look like everyone else's lives other than you attend church occasionally on Sunday. That is not what your life was meant to be. Your faith was meant to be public. And here's the thing, that when we read that, that, you know, you are the light of the world, you know, we don't want to uh, 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 squash the light. We want it bright and shining. The light always overtakes darkness, right? And there's a lot of darkness in our world. There's a lot of places that are hurting and broken in our world. And sometimes it's easy to think that there's just so much darkness. How will light ever win? How, how is my life supposed to make any difference in this really dark places? There's so many bad things going on in our world, but it's easy to forget that light always wins. I don't know if you've ever walked into a dark room and flipped on the light. What happens? Light overtakes darkness. It's just the fact of the matter. And as we've bought into this lie that our, our, our Christian faith is to be private, what do we see here that Jesus says, you're the light of the world, the city on a hilltop that can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? To turn on the light and then to cover the light up. That's a counterintuitive oxymoronic thing to do. And so no one does that. But somehow we've bought into this fact that my life and my Christian faith is to be private. So the enemy who uh, wants to perpetuate darkness, he knows that he can't, darkness can never overcome light. It's just, it can't happen. But what he does know, and so he, even though he knows that he can't overtake light, what he does try to do then is that since he can't defeat light, he convinces you to hide your light. That's what the enemy does. He convinces you to hide your light, to put a little basket on top of your light so that your love and your faith doesn't get seen, doesn't get heard, isn't reflected. And then darkness perpetuates. But as soon as poof, that comes off, darkness no longer stands a chance. And I know and I believe that you are called to be a light in our city, in your work, in your family. And I'm always glad that we get to gather and worship. And that was, that was great. That was a great time of worship. Hopefully I present a decent sermon. But it should always be more exciting when the 250, 300, 400 people, whoever, how many of you are here, when we all leave. That should be the real exciting time because here are a couple hundred people who have the light and the burning love for Jesus in their heart going out in all places across the, across the Spokane region. That's like the real exciting time. And so our responsibility as Christians and as, as bearers of the faith is to let your light burn that your life should burn for Jesus. And this cannot be done out of obligation. This cannot be done out of duty. This can't be done out of, well, the pastor said so, so I gotta go and do, or this can't be done out of any type of uh, obligation in your life. Your responsibility, and what this means is that you need to fall madly in love with Jesus. You need to fall madly in love with Jesus that he needs to be first place in your life. I remember when I first uh, was dating my, my now wife 
And as my love grew and kindled for her, at some point it was like, the whole world has to know about my love. You know what I'm talking about? You've been there before, come on. And then it's just, you know, you're like doing skips through the, over puddles and stuff and whatnot. And you need to fall madly in love with Jesus because if you're not madly in love with him, what your temptation is gonna be is to put and squash your light. But when you bear that responsibility and that burden to burn for Jesus and you fall madly in love with him, then that's where light always wins. John writes in chapter four, first John, he says, we love because he first loved us. We get to love people and we love him because Christ first loved us. We get to and need to return to our first love that he loved you, he made you, and we need to return to our first love, that we have any capacity to love whatsoever because we are image bearers of Christ. He made you and put love inside you. And we all need, in order to do this, in order to have this madly, be madly in love with God, is we need a revelation, a fresh revelation. Many times, I'm right there included, a fresh revelation of God's love in my life. What that means. What that is. That at once, when you first put your faith in Christ, if you remember at that church camp or whatever, you were on fire for God. You would do anything for him. But then what creeps in to that, that, that like mountaintop experience? The same thing that creeped in for Adam and Eve creeps in for us, which is shame and guilt. Then what we realize is that what we said yes to, our life doesn't align up with. We said yes to Jesus, but then we go back into our life and what we find out is it's harder than I thought it was gonna be. And I still sin. And I still have temptations and I still mess up. And then you think like, oh, well, I'm supposed to be this, you know, on fire, uh, on fire person for God. And I'm supposed to let my light shine and all these things. But then as sin and temptation and all the life's uh, hard lessons that creep in, then we feel guilt and shame of why am I not supposed to be who I'm supposed to be? And then what happens is we end up hiding areas of our life that we are to give to God. And as we hide from God and we hide from the the things in our life, then our light diminishes because only a fraction of it can be seen and we hide the rest. For someone who doesn't follow Jesus, you live how you want to. And for, for some of you who haven't said yes to him yet, you're looking for love. You're looking for a relationship and connection and acceptance. And you're trying to fill your life with many things that you, that you find pleasure in. And I get that. And you're on a journey. And you, I'm glad that you're here and you're welcome this morning. But you also probably know that there's things that don't feel right. That What those are is the sin in your life, the areas in which you have messed up and fallen short of what God's standard is for your life. And your life stands in opposition to how God made you, which was to be complete and whole and to be in relationship with him. And then the shame of doing wrong leaves you broken and wondering, is this really what life is all about? 
For others, people who have dabbled into faith and maybe said yes to Christ at some point in their life, but then they're, they just keep falling back into old patterns and habits and your life really doesn't look that much different even though you've said yes. This person, if this is you, you might have come to a Christian faith much like you go to a shopping mall that you browse stores looking for what you like and what you need and what feels, feels good to you and what suits your own needs. But then as life goes on and you go to this church and you go to that church and you go to this place to get that and you go to this church or this person to get that, what ends up happening is as you just fill your own needs and you just keep doing that, you never demonstrate a serious commitment to a life and obedience of the transformation that you have received. And there's not this deep commitment to being a disciple of the Lord. And your temptation then is to use Christianity for the sake of what's good in life now and an insurance plan for the life to come. But this still leaves you feeling broken. It still leaves you with shame and guilt because you know that you shouldn't do maybe some things that you're doing. And you still have a longing for real connect connection, to be known and loved by God and by other people. And you know that your life doesn't align. It's incongruent how God made you as well. And then for the person who is a dedicated Christian, what stands in the opposition of our life or in our light being shown, is still guilt and shame. But it's done in a different way. And as people become Christians, it's easy to get into this certain pattern, which I'm going to call uh, the moral temptation. And now this moral temptation has been uh, written about by a lot of different people. And I'm, I'm going to read to you the moral temptation that uh, was thought of and written about by Dr. John Coe, who is the spiritual formation director at Biola University. He says, the moral temptation is the attempt to deal with our spiritual failure, the areas that we mess up in life, that we don't measure up, even though we know we should. Guilt and shame by means of spiritual efforts by attempting to perfect oneself in the power of oneself. It is the attempt of the well-intentioned believer to use spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines, ministry, service, obedience, being good in general in any way as a way to relieve the burden of spiritual failure, lack of love, and the guilt and shame that results. It is the temptation to try and relieve a burden that Christ alone can relieve. What this means is that even though you're dedicated the guilt and shame that you feel by not measuring up, what you try and then do is measure up by just being better and being good. It's this temptation to be a more moral person. That if I can just work on more moralism and things in my life, then maybe I'll be accepted by God. And this, where does this come from? It comes from this original sin. It's still the guilt and shame that we feel for when we mess up, and so we hide from God. Now, Peter Scazzaro writes about this in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Really good read. But what he says is our life is like an iceberg. And if you look, think of an iceberg, only a small fraction of it is seen above the water, isn't it? The rest of this massive iceberg is underneath the water. And so our life, only about 10% of our life is seen to others. 
And so that 10% of our life, then we feel like in order to measure up and be accepted and loved, I have to work on these areas, the areas that people see in my life. So I try and be a more moral person, a, a good person. I try and serve. I try and do these things. But then what can happen is the 90% underneath the water, that massive iceberg, it stays hidden and unseen. And so there's these areas in our life that we hide from God. And the way that we cover hiding those areas up from God is by being a better person. And if we feel like if I can just be a better person, but I hide these deep rooted uh, seeds of pain, of guilt, of shame, of past trauma, of things that have taken place in my life that I don't want to look at, I don't want to think about. And as long as I perfect the 10% that's seen and become a more moral person, then I'll be loved and accepted by others and by God. And this is the great moral temptation for faithful followers of Christ to never fully examine the 90%, the deepest places of your life. So this is a result of, of not only the original sin that we see in Adam and Eve that they, they hid and they felt the shame and guilt, but this is perpetuated throughout time and history and it's relapsed over and over and over again throughout all different human races and, and ethnicities and just the whole human world. And part of it is why we, uh, how we parent. And so Dr. Coe, he lines out some two simple things that I'm just going to abbreviate for you really quick, but they're really important to understand, why do I do that? Why do I just try and work on the 10% and not the 90%? And he says that it's out, uh, a significant portion of it is out of our childhood. We know that our childhood, you know, you can have past trauma and it really affects you in your life. Uh, I'm someone who was raised by amazing parents and I'm blessed by that. There's some really good things that have come from my life because I had two loving parents. But there was some past trauma in my life, things that really fractured my soul, things in areas uh, in my heart that needed real mending. That there was nothing I could do to work on them just by being a better person. And it's those areas that if we hide them from God, then we're going to, the result of it will be living a life out of moralism and not a life that has Christ first place in our heart out of him. And so he says parenting, and there's, two, there's a few different parenting methods here that he illustrates, but one of them is parenting out of guilt. And I want you to, to think back, not of how you parent now if you're a parent, but I want you to think back of how your parents parented you, because this is the result of who you are and why you are today. Parenting out of guilt. This is the situation in which a child does wrong. So if you were a child growing up, what happened when you did something wrong in your home? When you messed up, you sinned, you, you did something wrong. The, and parenting out of guilt is when the child does something wrong, the parent cannot endure the bad of the child and becomes condemning, punitive, and splits off relationally from the child. This is the rejecting parent who cannot tolerate, love, discipline, and correct the child in their bad state, in their wrongdoing, in their sin. That it's just too hard. And I don't want to see it. I want to deal with it. So they just cut them off and they parent them out of guilt. Why is this parent, uh, parenting out of guilt? Because condemning attitude of the parent towards the child, uh, toward the child's badness or wrongdoing typically sends the child into a life of hiding from self-awareness, parents, and others. Much as a parent may have cut off a child, you end up cutting off self-awareness about yourself as you grow up. 
And maybe some of you, you grew up in a home like that. Maybe you remember saying something like this as a child or in your thoughts or as you reflect back. My parents cannot handle seeing me as I am. They cannot handle the truth of my badness or my wrongdoing or my sin. Thus, I must hide my heart from them and others. I do not even want to see it myself. And I will just try to please or I will pretend to please until I'm out of here. I don't know if that was you growing up that you're like, I'm just going to try and pretend to please my parents around me because they can't handle who I really am until I'm 18 and I'm gone. Anyone in that boat? The second is parenting out of shame. And these parents often are good parents. They're caring. They're kind. But do not know what to do with their child's wrongdoing and their own for the matter except to exhort and train their children to be good. In this case, the parent is unable to help the child experience more deeply the truths uh, of his or her wrongdoing and what is really going on in the depths of the child's heart in the context of parental love and discipline. So most of these parents do not want to know what is in the heart of the child, let alone their own heart. So this sends the child into a life of covering up their badness or their wrongdoing, and the child feels loved by you, but not known by you. And as you reflect back on your childhood, maybe that was you. You had good, loving parents, but they just trained you to be good. Don't do bad stuff, do good things. And so this is maybe something you would have reflected on. I should not be bad. No one can love me when I'm bad. And no one can handle my badness or my wrongdoing but me. I'm supposed to deal with my badness by being good. Being good will make me more acceptable and lovable to my parents. So when I'm bad, they love me less. But when I'm good, they love me more. And this sends a a child into a life of feeling loved but not known by their parent. Pleasing and trying to work their way into being better. Now, this is the effect of that original sin. That Adam and Eve, they sinned, they felt guilt and shame, and they hid from God. And this, and how you were raised, bringing up to where you are today, this affects your relationship with God. And it affects how you view God, and it affects what you think God wants from you. That you feel that though, you know, if I am not good and I don't work on it myself, I might be loved, but I'm not accepted by God. And this explains why so many believers, myself including, okay, don't experience liberation through the awareness of sin. I don't know about you, but if you've given your life to Christ and you knew you had some bad habits, some poor choices, some sinful behavior, but when you said yes to him, they weren't just, the sin wasn't just gone. You ever experienced that? That we don't just experience liberation from the awareness of our sin. Just by self-awareness doesn't mean you're liberated from it. And so um, then what ends up happening is we feel like we must work harder at being good to become acceptable to God. And this is the heart of true moralism. It's the the idea that, that God loves me, but he doesn't accept me for who I am. So I have to work on the 10% that's seen instead of giving him everything. But I want to give you some really good news right now, because that's some heavy stuff, right? And I'm sure I had parents come up to me last service. It was just like, I'm a terrible parent. You know, it's like, me too, me too. All right. I want to give you some really good news right now. Okay. Is that there's this principle in the faith 
that's called the double imputation. And what this is, is like a double work of grace that God gave you. That that moment that you said yes to Jesus back at summer camp or rooted or in your bedroom or whatnot, God gave you two things that are amazing, this double work of grace in your life. The first is this, that when you said yes to him, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are imputed or ascribed to, to Christ so that there is no condemnation towards you. The resulting is a full pardon and acquittal from your shame, guilt, and sin. That means that when you said yes, Christ took on all your badness, all your wrongdoing. He took it from you and placed it on himself when he died on the cross. That you get a full 100% pardon of all your past, present, and future guilt, shame, and sin in your life. The second thing that this work of grace that God gives us is all of Christ's merited righteousness is imputed or now ascribed to you and to me. That one, he full pardoned me and took all of my sin, but then he gave me all of his righteousness, all of it. And he ascribed that to me so that God relates to me on the basis of his son's perfect obedience and righteousness, that I am now a son or daughter in the eyes of God. And I am totally accepted by the father in Christ and not by the basis of my own merit. So that double work of grace is God gives you grace by taking all of your sin, but then there's this act of grace that he gives you all of his righteousness by your faith. So that full pardon and full acceptance is what that means. So that means that if all your sins are truly imputed and ascribed onto Christ and there's no condemnation, if that is true, then you can come out of hiding. You can come out of hiding in your prayer life, to be honest with God, about everything. You can come out of hiding about the areas in your life that maybe you haven't fully given to him. You have nothing to lose but to open more deeply to your need of him and the daily forgiveness that you have given by the cross. And the second, if Christ's righteousness and not your own has really been given to you, imputed to you, and that you are totally accepted by the Father, then stop trying to cover up your badness by being good. You don't need to do that. You don't need to just work on the 10%. You don't need to just work on the way, the, in the ways that you're bad to try and counterbalance it by just being good, by just being a good person. But in full confession of your, of your sin and your failure, obey in light of your failure and what he has done for you. That's what we do. So we return to our first love. We return to him and place him first in our life because he's taken all your sin and he's given you all his righteousness. And he wants all of your life, all 100%, even the stuff under the water that you don't want anyone to see. Even in the areas in your life, you haven't fully examined yourself. The areas that you have decided to keep pushing down and pushing down, Christ can bear all of it. That we return to our first love and make Christ first in our life. We don't have to Try and be out there ahead of him, working on the things in our life without him being present in all of it. So I want to leave you with this as we close down here. I hope that today you cross a point of no return. 
I hope today that you cross that. In aviation, back in the day, this was meant to, as a plane was taking off, it would reach so much velocity and speed on the runway that if it didn't take off and, it, and, and go through with its flight, it would crash. It, they crossed this point of no return that we just have to go for it and we have to, we have to go. Or it was meant to, as a plane was, was going out, it would reach a point in its flight that it couldn't turn back around and, and return to the original airport. It would have to go on to the destination. It would cross this point of no return. And maybe some of you have experienced this in just a real practical way. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever been cliff jumping before. It's awesome, go do it. Or maybe you've jumped off a high dive or something like that. There's always this point of no return that as you stand at the edge of the cliff or the high dive or whatnot, and you're gonna take that leap of faith, there's always this point of when you actually jump, you can't go back, if you know what I'm talking about. But many of us know people who have stood at the edge, right? And they're like, okay, I'm gonna jump. And you're like, yeah, jump, it's gonna be great. And they're like, oh, and they just stand there, right? And then everyone at the bottom is like, all right, we're going to count. On three, you go one, two, three, jump. And they're like, yeah, and they don't do it. And then people wait, and they wait, and it's just like, it, you just, it's like nails on a chalkboard, you know, just like, just do it, you know? And they're just standing there, and it's like you just want them to cross the point of no return, Right? You, if you just cross that, it's going to be good. But many of us in our Christian faith, we stand at this point and we don't want to jump over. And we end up being on this roller coaster of emotion in our faith life and in our Christianity because we stand at the top and we get all super hyped up at camp or church or whatnot. And we go, okay, I'm actually going to jump everyone. And everyone's like, yeah, jump. And then you're like, oh, you go back home and you're like, oh, I can't jump. And you begin this life on a faith roller coaster, emotional highs with not actually taking the leap of faith. Or people who, who stand at the top, right? And they're like, being a Christian is boring. And it's like, yo, you're at the top. You haven't jumped yet. Like, of course it's boring at the top. Like jump over and see the exhilarating life God has for you. Or maybe you stand at the top in fear because you don't know what it's like when you take that leap of faith. You don't know what it's like to truly put Christ first in your life and to align your life, your finances, your relationships, your, your uh, physical life, your mental life, your emotional life, your relational life, your spiritual life. It's like, woo, that's a lot. I don't know what it's like if I really truly align my life with God's word and just go for it. And you stand at the top in fear. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would cross that point of no return that when you actually take the leap of faith and you get past the point of no return, there's no going back. You can't go back. But it takes the act of finally taking the leap and going into the unknown. Would you pray with me? And if you're here this morning, and you know what? You've stood at the top of that faith ledge. And you've never taken that leap of faith. You've observed for a while. Maybe you've come to church a few times. And you know that your life stands in opposition of God's word. And you know you need forgiveness of your sins. I want to tell you that God offers you a full pardon of your sin and full acceptance in a life with him. And as you stand at the top of that ledge, that faith ledge, I'm going to ask that you pray this prayer if you want to take that leap of faith. And you want to say yes to God this morning if you've never done that. And if that's you, would you pray this with me? Lord, I don't know everything but I do want to take the leap of faith this morning. 
I ask that you forgive me of my sin. God, I want you to take my sin and I want to take on your righteousness. Forgive me. Come into my heart. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. I want to follow you all the days of my life. And if that you prayed that prayer, that is a flag in the sand moment that you get to look back on. And people are going to be rejoicing with you and angels are rejoicing in heaven right now. And if that was you, just with a first act of boldness and courage and saying, I took that leap of faith, would you just raise your hand so I can see if you said yes to God this morning? Good. Yes. Yeah. That is amazing. And those of you in here who you have been... Um, You've been walking this faith walk a long time, but you haven't taken the leap of faith. You truly haven't jumped over that faith ledge. You've been holding back. You know that, that there's more that God has for you. I wanna pray for you this morning that you would return to your first love and you would go head over heels, madly in love with him and take that full faith step, that first things first, all of it would align with God. If that's you, God, we give you today Lord, we want more of you. I want more of your, of your spirit. I want more of your righteousness. I want more of who you are, God. I need you in my life. Lord, I, I, for the areas in which I have withheld uh, uh, moving forward, God, I want to take that leap this morning, committing to you all that I have. And I pray that you use me. God, that my light would shine. And I thank you for that and pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you said yes to Jesus in some way this morning, I'd love for you to come tell me. Or if you are new here to the church and maybe you haven't been connected, I would love to meet you. I'll be right underneath this monitor right over here. If you'd like some prayer, there'll be people right over here. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.